Welcome to Follow Your Curiosity, where we explore the inner workings of the creative process. I'm your host, Nancy Norbeck. When I started this podcast in 2019, Dr. Kelly Flanagan was one of my inaugural guests, and his episode, The Gifts of Creativity, remains one of my favorites. Kelly has just published his first novel, The Unhiding of Elijah Campbell, and I wanted to talk to him about how that experience differed from writing nonfiction and about the book itself. We delve into those questions and various subjects raised by the book, including how we look outside ourselves and sometimes to our creative work to find our worth, the value of letting out our wild sides, how the things we do for security often actually undermine us, and how Kelly sees the intersection of spirituality and creativity. As an added bonus, we have a copy of the book to give away to a listener. Stay tuned to hear those details at the end. I think you'll really enjoy this very rich conversation with Dr. Kelly Flanagan. Kelly, welcome back to Follow Your Curiosity. Thank you for having me back, Nancy. I'm I'm excited and I'm I'm not gonna lie. I finished your book this morning. You did? I did. Yeah. Kelly Flanagan, you made me cry and you did it a couple of times. Oh well, that's feels really good to hear. As a as a new novelist, I, I was gonna say, that. yeah, that, that means you did what you were trying to do, right? Mm, yeah. So since you've been here before, I'm not gonna ask you how you got started writing if people want to find that out. They can go sure. check out your your other episode. But I am curious to know what what convinced you that you should try to write a novel and how mm. that experience went for you compared to the writing that you had done before. Wow, yeah. Um, so it's interesting that you say what convinced you to, to write a novel because this is the irony. And we talked about this a little bit in our last conversation. I have, in, in one way or another, wanted to write a novel for at least 25 years, um, going back to graduate school. Um, and my, uh, I, was, I started like a half a dozen novels back then. Life got busy. And so I've wanted to do that for 25 years. And so in the process of the, the current project that you just finished, in the process of it evolving, the publisher, I, I basically sent them a proposal for a nonfiction project. And they replied with, we think this would be better as a novel or as a fictional <laughs> book. And I literally said, no, you must have misunderstood me. <laughs> like, <laughs> let me repropose this. I tried to convince them to let me write another nonfiction book. They came back again and said, well, here, we think this would be better as, even more so now, we think this would be better as, as fiction. And I said, well, talk to my agent. I said, what are they, are they do we need to just they're clearly not understanding, but we need to pitch an entirely different concept. <laughs> and Kathy's so great. She just said, well, spend a month with it and see where this goes, this idea of writing fictional <clears throat> story. And it went some pretty amazing places. And I, over the course of about six or seven months, I wrote a novel. And the day after I finished the manuscript, I was out for a walk with a friend. And, and I in, in I told him, I said, I finished the, the, the novel. And he said, so have you sent it to your agent or your editor yet? And he said, no. And I'm thinking about not sending it because I think I really need to write a nonfiction book right now about following your passion. <laughs> and he looks at me and he goes, how can you write a nonfiction book about following your passion if you're not following your passion for becoming a novelist, <laughs> right? And I was like, yeah, this is hard to look in the mirror if I didn't send this one in. So. I did, and you you got to read the uh, the fruits of all that labor. But how how did it feel when you when you sat down to actually play with it? I mean, was it mm. was it what you expected writing fiction to be, or were you constantly having to try to pull yourself Good out question. of nonfiction mode? Good question. So I think part of the process for me was surrendering to the direction I've been going in my writing already. So, you know, my blog posts in my first book, Lovable, are very story-oriented. Uh, like, there's a story, and then there's a teaching point based upon that story, and it pretty much alternates. Um, by the time I published True Companions, when you look in, it's a nonfiction book, but there's at least three scenes where I'm just, three whole chapters where I'm just imagining something in my, one of the, it's, the book starts off with me imagining joining my younger self on his wedding day. 
and sort of telling him kind of the advice I'd have on his wedding. And there's a, a chapter in the middle of the book where I imagine my younger self joining me on a particularly lonely night and how we would dialogue about that. And the book concludes with me imagining all my lost loved ones sort of gathering together in me. And it's like, I was, I was writing fiction within a nonfiction book mm-hmm. in, in a lot of ways. So, um, so clearly that yearning was in me. I had to sort of acknowledge that I had that yearning and to, needed to pursue it. Uh, I'll tell you the biggest difference between the two uh, forms of writing was I feel like with writing nonfiction, you have a lot of control. Like you're, you have a you have a point that you're trying to make for the reader over the course of the book, and you're you're sort of like engineering to get the reader to that conclusion. Um, so it feels like it's a lot about controlling the arc of the book. Whereas with writing fiction, uh, it was about learning to let go of control, to think that you know where the next few scenes are going to go, and then to watch the characters do something totally different. Which is why for me, writing fiction was. X number of times more joyful than writing nonfiction. It was like I was getting, I was getting to be the first reader in a, in mm-hmm. a way. Like, oh my gosh, I can't believe he did that. I didn't see that coming. <laughs> um, and that happened over and over again. And so, um, one of the things that I've, I've already shared with several people is that, like, it, this was transformative for me. I started to, I started to realize that Mister Brighton, if I'm, if I'm struggling to let my characters sort of be in control of themselves and become who they want to be. Like how much more am I doing that in my life to my people? Like struggling to let them have control of their own lives and become who they want to be. And so it's been really transformative at a personal level too, to to try to live the way I write, which is to allow the people in my world to do and be what they want to do and be. Yeah, that is I wrote my novel long enough ago that I don't think that I had the clarity to see it that way but i know you know for a lot of people who are writing fiction for the first time the minute that a character does something that they didn't expect Mm. or talks back to them or you know just plain says "Uh uh-uh nope Uh sorry you want me to turn left i'm going to the right and you can deal they think they've lost their minds and so you know it's a really freaky experience and i remember when it happened to me it's like okay i'm going completely nuts because i'm having (laughs) an argument with this character about where he's from and he's not listening to me (laughs) oh good well and you've read the story so i can remember that specific moment you know Mm -hmm. i love the way you just articulated that it was um and i won't no spoilers but um Elijah is leaving his dad's law office after having remembered that the experience he had there. And I had it plotted that he was supposed to go from there to have another sort of deep conversation with the grandparent. And he's like, I'm not going to talk to anybody. I got too much to process right now. I need to go find a quiet space and just sort this out. And that's, he ends up in a park and it becomes sort of a pivotal scene in the book, which I hadn't planned at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and the person who shows up in that scene, I hadn't planned for them to show up. So um so yeah like that really resonates with what what you just said like i he i had been planning to do a totally different thing like nope not gonna go do that yeah i think that that moment is when the characters really become real you know when they start to talk with you and talk back to you and have their own views on things it's like wow now we're now we're really cooking with gas you know it's like now let's see where this is going to go i always worry when you know when they stop talking to me usually means that i've taken a break that was a little bit too long and Mm -hmm. you know hi i'm back no really come talk to me again you know right but but yeah yeah, when they start with that they they take on a life of their own in a way Mm -hmm. that I had occasionally heard people talk about before i really started writing fiction and then you know in fact, when I was in high school, I did a, a paper on an author that I didn't really care about. It was a sign, okay. you know? And uh-huh. I remember reading something about I wanted to do this, but my characters wanted to do that. And in my 16-year-old infinite brilliance, my response was, <laughs> of course. what are you talking about? You're the writer. You can make them do whatever you want. And that uh-huh. day that I was having that argument with that character, I was like, yeah, okay, I guess you can't actually uh, right. do that. Turns out I didn't know everything when I was 16. <laughs> what were the odds, uh, right? <laughs> right. Precisely. <laughs> yes. But that, yeah. um, that actually brings to mind 
a quote that really struck me. And the, the interesting thing about this quote was that in, in the moment when I read it, I thought, wow, I really, I think there's so much truth to that. But it felt almost not like a throwaway line, but like a line that was just there to be observed and move mm. on. And then it clearly grew into something more, especially by the end of the book, mm. where um, Elijah says, I think it's Elijah, we humans try to make things more beautiful by making them more ordered. Maybe God mm. makes things more beautiful by letting them grow more wild. Mm. Yeah. And I think, you know, because I, as I thought about it, as I went through the book, I thought, yeah, the order, how much of order, because I, I am not anti-order, but right. I wonder sometimes how much order is more about control than about oh. peace. Yeah. And, and how much we use it to avoid letting yes. ourselves become more wild. Yes. Oh, I, you, you picked up on a theme that definitely, um, and that's another thing, the characters don't just do what they want to do. They also tell you more precisely what the theme is, right? You, <laughs> you have greater clarity by the time you're, you're done with it. And that has certainly developed into one of the themes of the book that, um, you know, the, the title of the book is The Unhiding of Elijah Campbell. So you know, the, the idea that Elijah was definitely keeping secrets for good reasons because he was trying to protect his people and trying to love them well, but also that selfish desire to be, be in control of his life, right? And to make sure it's going the way that he wants it to go. And, um, and his trajectory is definitely one from beginning to recognize that his controlled life is not nearly as beautiful as a life where he's beginning to let go and and let it be and let people be and sort of settling into the expansiveness and the beauty of that and the, the scene that you just described um was one where uh, he is returning to an old banded golf course and he remembered that the, the field of flowers were beautiful but now that the course has gone wild they're even more beautiful and uh and the first time sort of in his story that he's actually contemplating really letting go of control and letting his life grow more wild beautiful so yeah i appreciate that you've you put your finger on that sort of hinge and that theme I think. yeah i didn't know that it was going to be such a a theme at the time but i just me either you know <laughs> as you point out <laughs> funny how that happens uh -huh. yeah but i think i think there's really something in that you know especially like you know, I live in New Jersey, where mm -hmm. even now somehow they are finding more places to build on. And it's sure. like, can we have can we have a little something that's yeah. still green and has dandelions and you yeah. know thistles and all the things that we think are bad mm. growing in it? Just you know, plus all of the stuff that's pretty and nice. Can can we have some place that's still like that? Uh, I mean, even the park next to my house is largely lawn. You, you know, manicured. It's, it's right. manicured. It's got some areas that aren't so much, but you know, aside from the deer that come in to roam mm. around a little bit, it's it's largely controlled. It's interesting. Yeah, uh, you know, we were vacationing or we were visiting friends in Madison, Wisconsin this summer, and we observed that like a I don't know if it's a landscaping trend or like decades long cultural sort of norm, but um, a lot of the lawns and landscaping around homes have like large areas of just wild flower wild you know and how much we enjoyed that rather than just sort of the manicured grass everywhere there's a special beauty as you drive around that city that you don't see in a lot of cities yeah 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 no we have, we have zero grass at our house just so you know <laughs> zero grass literally don't need a lawnmower we love wild things growing around our house that's fantastic <laughs> i actually saw someone local had posted on next door maybe a month or so ago trying to explain what they were doing with their lawn that they mm. wanted to make it more more wild and it was fascinating to watch that conversation especially the comments from the neighbor across the street oh i, I bet people have strong opinions that was such a good idea <laughs> yes <laughs> yeah yes yeah but yeah. It, it also made me think kind of you know of what we were just talking about the fact that the more you try to control your creative work, mm -hmm. the more you're kind of forcing it to contort itself into something that it doesn't want to be. 
which may even be how you get stuck and you get blocked because you're not realizing that no no it doesn't want to be this thing it doesn't it doesn't want to be a nonfiction book kelly it wants to be a novel right exactly (laughs) exactly it's you know and maybe as as a growing artist i think so much of it is about realizing that you're not creating the beauty you're creating space for it to to Mm -hmm. sort of surface or manifest and and so you don't have to be real order in order to make that happen you just have to show up and sort of be a conduit and there's a and i think that's another one of the joys of it it's it's deepening of faith that oh like reality is beautiful in and of itself at its foundation and uh, and we can allow it to, to sort of take place we don't have to be constantly controlling it to make it beautiful we actually sort of diminish it if we're trying to do that so um, I definitely learned that while writing the book, and I think Elijah learned that while living through the book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's a huge it's a huge theme, and I found myself loving it, but also wrestling with. Okay, it's easy to read about a fictional character doing this, but it's totally different to try to do it in your own life. You know, the mm-hmm. the moment where he's having the conversation and security comes up and the idea of clinging to security Mm. you know like all of our conventional wisdom is about Mm. clinging to security you know you buy the house because that's more secure you don't leave one job without another one because oh you know the 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 end of the world might happen you know and and so we're kind of trained to do that and Mm. then when you encounter the idea that security is is not something you can hang on to forever and a lot of security i think is an illusion Mm. but even when you realize it's an illusion it can still be really hard to let go of the illusion Mm. yeah i mean it makes me think of i mean makes me think of that movie the matrix right where oh yeah uh, there are characters in the movie who prefer the illusion of the Mm -hmm. stability and the security and the um yeah, I, um, I guess it, it ties in with that idea of the wild. I think if you think of like maybe half of life is actually safe and half of it is totally unpredictable and vulnerable, scary and risky and dangerous and all of that. Well, if you're trying to stay in security, you're like only getting to live like half of life. And, um, and there's something really beautiful about living it all, uh, you know, taking your, taking your bumps and your bruises and the pain and, um, and living it all sort of like that being the goal rather than just the safe stuff, Um, which is, again, exactly what Elijah learns to do over the course of the book. Yeah. And I think, oh, I didn't copy this quote, but there's a, there's a moment in, in the book that goes along with that conversation about security Mm -hmm. where, you know, it's like, no, heaven is knowing that whatever happens to you, you're going to be okay. Yes. Which was just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I can see that. I can feel that as I read it. Mm. And yet it's still so hard to let go of that idea that if you don't know what's going to happen to you, which is crazy because you can't ever know what's going to happen to you, you right? Ever. That's right. That's right. That, that, you know, you're doing something wrong and it's going to kill you. It's going to ruin you. You know, all of these horrible, you know, nightmare monsters come up in your head and yeah i mean you can you can just feel the release of the idea of being Mm. like whatever happens i'm going to be okay you can feel it when you hear it when you say it when you read it and yet it still feels so elusive um as you're sort of pinpointing that i'm realizing how how much of that conversation is influenced by you know my my day job as a therapist uh a therapist to parents and teenagers and kids and that kind of thing and just like how how much more valuable it is to develop resilience than it is to, to preserve safety you know and so and 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 they're almost mutually exclusive like if we keep our kids in a perfectly safe environment where they never go through hardship never feel pain never learn how to get back up they can't develop resilience because resilience is just the awareness that i can i got what it takes to get through even when things are hard essentially um, and so that scene is really trying to articulate that, that um, resilience is a much more valuable human experience to cultivate than safety. 
optional because safety is temporary and transient and mostly an illusion, but resilience is something you can believe in. Yeah. I think most of us have, have learned to be attached to safety, maybe even yeah. addicted to safety to yes. the point where we don't even realize how much we've boxed ourselves in by it, which is kind of the theme of the whole book. Yes. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm a recovering safety addict myself, so I, I, could, I know the feeling. <laughs> so what helped you recover from that safety addiction? Well, probably like any recovery, I'm going through periods of sobriety and relapse. All the time. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't want to pretend that I'm anywhere uh, arrived. That's another conversation, right? The book about not thinking you're ever going to arrive. Um, yes. But what has helped me? Um, I think I think it's like so many things. There comes some point where the coping method or the defense mechanism or the protective instinct actually starts to create more suffering than it's preventing. And you start to question it and go, oh, like my efforts to be safe, keep life sterile, keep things in control, um, it's doing damage to my relationship with my kids. It's doing damage to my relationship with my wife. Um, I'm not, I'm not writing as well. <laughs> you know, um, I think it's, it's when the thing that worked for so long quits working, you start to ask bigger questions. And that's another one of the themes of the book, right? Like, and the, 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 the ways that we survive eventually start to harm us more than helping us to survive. So we have to call them into question and find new ways. They find new things we're pursuing. Um, so I think that's for me, and it probably started uh, 14 years ago now, um, finally calling into question the value of keeping everything safe and control and secure and going, you know what, you're, um, you're hurting a lot of people with all the efforts to do all that. <laughs> I remember I, I, I ruined almost every Mother's Day morning trying to make it just the right thing. I would ruin it though. I'd be so frustrated that the kids weren't participating and it wasn't going to plan, you know, and it turns out, uh, end up doing a lot of damage with that effort to control everything. So I'm on a 14 year, year path of recovery. So <laughs> <laughs> it is ironic though, that it's the thing that you're doing to try to make something great. That's yeah. ruining it. It's ruining it. Yeah. I think mm -hmm. it takes us a lot of times more time than it feels like it should, or that we wish it would before it yeah. dawns on us that that's what it is. That's screwing things up. Well, another version of that, you know, we're, people on all the time is have you ever tried to force a loved one to be happy? Has that ever worked for you? <laughs> <laughs> like it turns out trying to force or convince someone to be happy actually makes them less happy. And so you actually eventually have to call into or you either keep doing the same thing and getting the same results and making everybody miserable or you go, huh, maybe I can't force people to be happy. Maybe I can't make that happen. Maybe I can do something different with my time in this room. Maybe loving doesn't look like making them happy. Maybe it looks like holding space for their unhappiness. Um, and so you start to just have different questions about better ways to be that's such a what you just said about maybe loving is more holding space for their unhappiness that is because mm. one of the things that i've been thinking about since i finished the book like four hours ago is <laughs> the whole idea and and i have you know kind of been asking myself this question for a while you know i think about what I saw as a kid, what I watched on TV, the books that I've read, the movies that I've seen. And I find myself a lot of the time saying to myself, do I actually know what love is? Because mm. I think it's the things that I've seen in all of these places that mm. we put on screens and we write in books and, and you know, there's that moment in your book where, you know, Elijah has to face the fact that hanging on He's yes. confused for love, and maybe that's not what it is. And I thought, yet again, okay, I'm, you know, do I really know what this is? Mm -hmm. I mean, I have two little nephews that, you know, I would take a bullet for without a second thought. That's as close as I get to mm -hmm. what it actually is. And even that, I don't think really covers the whole thing. Right. You know, it's like there are things yeah. that I know that I love. But what does real love actually look like as opposed to the idea that we are sold all the time? And I have a feeling that I am far from the only one who mm. feels a little bit like, hmm, 
maybe this thing I was sold isn't the real deal. So then what is the real deal? That's a great way to put it. This thing I was sold is not the real deal. Cause then that's precisely what Elijah starts to realize over the course of the book is because I, I do think we go around sincerely, <clears throat> sincerely going, Oh, I'm loving you. Anyone can, but that depends upon what your definition of love is. So that could mean something very different from person to person. And so we were sold this sort of experience. We called it love. And maybe it's more than that. Maybe it's different than that. I know for me, like one of the insights that's come out of writing this book is I was sort of sold on the idea that love is agreement. Like if we love each other, we'll all find a way to agree. Um, I suppose you could say that's what's happening in our country right now. Well, and in our world, if we, would, if we all, you know, if we're all going to be together, we all have to agree. Um, but love can be holding space for disagreement. There's nothing more loving than that. To go, you have a difference of opinion and difference of belief, and I'll still hold space here with you, be present to you. Um, so I'm learning that love the capacity to be in disagreement, actually, and to still be with each other. Um, so yeah, I think it's a it's a worthy question for all of us to ask. What's, what's my de- definition of love? What snuck its yeah. way in early on? And how might I start to question that and expand that a little bit? Yeah. And along with that, I, I love, I love the scene where Elijah is talking to his uncle and his uncle explains to him what proxies mm. of worth are. Mm. Because I, I thought about that not only in how we relate to ourselves, but how so many creative people look mm. at their worth in terms of how much people like what they created mm-hmm. which can go so far wrong in so many ways you know if you're mm-hmm. showing your work to people who just don't like that kind of work it doesn't mean your work is bad it means they just don't like that kind of work mm-hmm. but if you take it as your work is bad you should stop doing this you're a terrible person you're a terrible creative person you're never going to be an artist mm-hmm. or whatever flavor of creativity you're going to be it's going to really mess with you in really big ways Mm, yeah it is it is so tempting uh yeah right book sales royalty payments all these um these number things um i'll tell you one of my favorite probably the one of the greatest moments of grace i ever experienced was right after we got the first quarterly royalty report from my first book lovable and you know as a first-time author you've got these wild numbers <laughs> like that you have decided those are that would be successful that'd be a mm-hmm. nice proxy i'd feel worthy as an author but and it was not even half of that and uh so i'm on the phone with my agent kathy and uh and i said and she seemed really happy and i was like kathy look these numbers low like and she said to me she was well kelly if you wanted to fill your trunk full of books and tour the country and neglect your family for a year, I think you could have sold more books. But for an introverted psychologist who loves his family and lives in the woods, I think you did pretty good, right? <laughs> and it was like my it was like my agent who was supposed to be concerned with these proxies for worth was just going, hey, you are who you are. Embrace that. Keep making art that reflects who you are and let the rest take care of itself. Um, and so since then, my, my main goal for any project has just been that I measure its success as uh, whether or not I get to make something else after it, right? And so far, I keep getting to make something else. Um, and that's up to us mostly, not other people, right? We can keep making things. And right. So as long as we're committed to that process, our creative craft is a success. I think that's that's where I land these days. Right. I mean, no one can stop you from writing another book, whether it's fiction or nonfiction or writing another blog post or whatever, even if your agent says, sorry, we're done. Like nothing, nothing can stop you from continuing to do that. If you decide that that's important to you and there's stuff that needs to come out of you. That's right. Well, and and Kathy cautioned me, my agent. um, So they did ask for fiction. They didn't ask, they did not ask for a novel. They said fiction. They were thinking more of some uh, shorter form situational sort of fiction for the concept. Um, and I came back to Kathy and said, you, know, you told me to sit with it for a month and I've got this, I've got this idea and I think I need to, to go with it. And she said, she said, most authors have three, four, five novels in the drawer before they can ever get one published. Mm-hmm. It's a hard, it's a hard thing to do. Um, but what that's telling you is that most published authors out there kept going at their craft, even when the proxies for work weren't there, the numbers weren't there, the right. reactions weren't there. So 
yeah, I, I'm, I'm grateful you've named that today because I think anybody who's creative and listening needs to just be encouraged, keep making things. Um, yeah. And it's not about the numbers. It's not about the likes and the shares and the follows and all of that. It's about it being important to you to make what you make and you doing that. Yeah. And I mean, if you want to have, this goes to the conversation in the book about joy and happiness, you could say happiness is related to the numbers. Joy is related to the making, right? Mm -hmm. Happiness is transient. It depends on circumstances. A lot of it's good luck and bad luck. Um, but, but joy is the process of taking something that wants to come out through you and, and putting it into the world and manifesting it. And most creatives understand the joy of that. So keep being joyful. Right. I mean, that's why you started creating something in the first place, because it yeah. gave you joy to do it. And, and I think it's so easy to lose track of that in terms of how many did I sell or how many people liked mm -hmm. it or, you know, yes. who said what about it? And it's not, it's not fundamentally about that. It's about the joy of actually creating the thing. That's right. Well, and I think, I think one of the significant ways that happiness and joy are different as well is that happiness doesn't have room for unhappiness. And as soon as somebody becomes unhappy, they're no longer happy, but I think joy has room for sorrow in it and struggle. Like, I think, I think you can make something out of joy and, and there's a lot of hard work that goes into that. There's a lot of struggle. There's moments of disappointment, but it doesn't necessarily diminish the joy. And actually there's a, there's a richer joy that, that, that happens when you say, I'm dedicating myself to this thing. I'm going to keep making this thing, even though it's a struggle at times. So, um, so yeah, I, I, that to me is the, that's the reason to make things. So then those proxies for worth for sure. Yeah. Well, and, and I also was thinking this morning, you know, obviously unhiding is a pretty big theme of the book. It ended up in the title, but right. you know, all of, all of those things that Elijah hides that we all hide seem to me to different degrees to kind of relate to the shadow concept mm -hmm. of, you know, the stuff that we tuck away about ourselves because we don't think that it's good enough. And sometimes we know what those things are and, and sometimes we don't, yes. but there's, there's also, you know, in addition to the idea that when, when you stop doing that, you allow for more joy in your life. There's also a great deal that you can do with all of those things creatively when mm. you let, those oh, shadow man. things and those hidden things out onto yes. the page or your sculpture or, or your music or, or whatever. Yes. So one of the ideas that I'm sort of taken with recently is that a definition of joy is um, the experience of freely allowing life to flow through you. And it doesn't matter if the, the life is easy stuff to feel and to experience or hard stuff. If you can let it freely uh, flow through you, that feels joyful. And, and I think that's what you're getting at. Like when we have a shadow side, all the stuff we're ashamed of, we think is unacceptable, can't bring out into the light. We've literally stopped letting life through, flow through us. It's sort of stuck in there. Um, and so to create art, allowing that shadow stuff to, to flow again, I think that's part of what the joy is. It's mm -hmm. life is flowing through us again. It's not all stopped up and contained in there and festering. So I think that's uh, as, as art can be healing in that way, in addition to just joyful in that way. So I think that's a great word. Yeah. And, and that reminds me of something else that actually made me stop reading for a second. <laughs> toward, yeah. toward the beginning of the book, when Elijah has a session with his therapist and his therapist tells him that anxiety and anger can't exist at the same time. So if he's ever feeling mm. really anxious, he should just get really pissed off about it. Yes. And I stopped and I thought, wait, does that mean that the cure for my stage fright is to get really mad about it? <laughs> and I started so kind of picturing that because I thought, you know, I've dealt with this my entire life. I think I could get pretty mad about it. Uh-huh. It'll it'll work. I can tell you as a psychologist, it will work. They're they're just these mutually exclusive. I mean, you think about like when you're faced with a threat, you, we all know about the fight or flight, right? Mm -hmm. It's not fight and flight. You can't do both at the same time. You can't fight the thing, the threat, and flee it. The flight is anxiety. It moves me away from the thing I fear. The anger is I move towards it and attack it, right? And so, yeah, you can't move in two directions at once. So uh, it'll work, I promise. I, I'm definitely going to have to give it a whirl because uh -huh. I was so fascinated by that. And it reminded me of what I've heard about you can't be in fear and curiosity at the same time, too. Yes, that, absolutely. Yeah. 
Yes, because curiosity again, curiosity is an unangry way of moving toward the thing. Yeah. Whereas fear is always moving away from the thing, resisting it, trying to run away from it. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It was just just that one little moment, but I was like, uh, <laughs> ooh, hmm. ooh, I can use that. <laughs> That's great. I'm glad it was practically useful. <laughs> trying to imagine singing while angry. It's like that. Uh-huh. That could lend a whole different angle to so, so many things. Oh, yeah. It's good. <laughs> so many things. I mean, there there are just so many things buried in, well, not buried, but, but mm. you know, little moments like that. Like, that is not one of the larger sure. revelations that there's not a moment where I cried, you know? Sure. But, but it still was like, oh, look at that. Uh, that's kind of cool yeah. i never i've never heard that one before you know and and other little things that there's you you threw a lot of stuff into this book <laughs> well one of my favorite things i've heard so far from readers is um that i read it the first time for the story like the story just swept me along and i just needed to know how it ended uh, but i've gone back to read the second time to go just slowly and sort of absorb um because yeah one of the concepts here is that um Ellie goes through his healing trajectory by having these conversations with lost loved ones and his memory and information. And each one of those conversations, I think, is just really rich in some sort of principle idea around transformation and healing. And, uh, and so, you know, I mean, I've read, <laughs> I've read it countless times now, obviously, through all of the, um, all the revisions, but I'm actually reading it one more time, about two-thirds of the way through. I think I'll finish today. Just to pull, to do exactly what you said, pull out quotes, you mm-hmm. know, for sharing purposes and that kind of thing. And um, yeah, and there's just there's a lot of meaty quotes in there that you could sort of camp out on and yeah. sort of journal on for a while. Um, but I do think the story itself keeps you from getting bogged down in those the first time yes. through. Yeah. Yes, and it does. I mean, it really does move. And admittedly, I mean, I have read this a little bit more quickly than I might have otherwise, though, you know, the the longest chunk of time that I spent with it was yesterday. And it certainly was not like I wanted to put it down. It was mm. it was just like, Thank you. you have to keep going, or at least I did. I, I told a friend it was like a freight train. Once it starts up, stay uh-huh. out of its way, because here it comes. Nice. And when it That's when awesome. it hits you, you're you're going to cry. Um Mm-hmm. But, you know, there there was another quote that that really struck me because this was another thing I had never heard before. Um, Regret is really just a way of denying our ordinariness. It's a way of mm-hmm. pretending we aren't all of us always growing and evolving and learning. It's a way of insisting we should be finished when in reality, all of us are always in process. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that was kind of another moment where I thought, oh, wow. Yeah. That's just so much better a way of looking mm. at these things because again it's a control thing right like we yes. think that we have to be done we think we have to be ready and how yes. can we possibly i mean it is my 51st birthday today and i can oh tell goodness. you Happy that birthday. i thank you that i I certainly, the things that I thought I knew when I was oh. 25 or 31 or 41 mm-hmm. or even a couple of years ago don't look the same way now. And how could they, you know, you think that, you know, you think, you know, everything when you're 16 and you're writing that paper about the author. Yes, you do. (laughs) But, but you don't and you, but you somehow, I think human beings continue to think that we know everything Mm. that we need to know. But I think as we get older, we start to realize how much we don't know too, and start to ask more questions of it anyway. But yeah, you know, that that thing that I wrote in fourth grade could not possibly be like the thing that I wrote when I was 40. Right. There's no way you yes. you are at that place and you do what you can with what you have at that place. And yes. then the next time when you know more, you do something different. And again, why does no one tell us this when we're uh, kids? I, right, <laughs> exactly. I hope young people will pick up this book. I, my, my 18-year-old read it and liked it um that is high praise from an 18 year old especially when it's your child (laughs) it is and and he did not feel the same way about my nonfiction works but he uh he definitely i think (laughs) uh, appreciated the story here well it makes me that that paragraph about uh, 
you know, regret is just sort of denial of our ordinary. Certainly it's helped that that concept has helped me through the last couple of months because we, we just launched him. Um, and he has been telling us for five years that he has no interest in college. He's going to move to Chicago and get a job and try to make it as a comedian in, in the city. We really launched him into adulthood a couple of years ago. And in that transitional moment, I think 10 years ago, I would have just been torn apart by regret. Like, why didn't I do more of this with him? Why didn't I do more of that with him? Why didn't I? And, and the answer is because I'm ordinary. Um, because I was figuring it out as I went and then hopefully get another crack at it someday as a grandfather and <laughs> know more and prioritize better. And, but, um, but the things that I regret are just signs of, yeah, I was just an ordinary dude trying to figure out how to be a dad. Another one, another one of the ways I've been thinking about that recently is like, I just, I tried so hard to be the, the greatest, best dad, you know? And yet my son, Aiden sort of probably treats me a lot. Like I think about my dad with all my, you know, disappointments and frustrations and all of that. So what I say these days is um, I'm not becoming my dad, but I'm definitely becoming Aiden's dad. <laughs> you know, I am an ordinary dad, no matter how hard I'm a try, because to him, I'm his only his only version. And there's gonna be disappointments and frustrations and that sort of thing. So um so yes, this this concept of regret is just denial of our ordinariness is um it's been it's been freeing, it's been graceful. Doesn't mean you quit trying, doesn't mean you don't kind of give it your all, but it just means that your all is gonna be probably somewhere in the ordinary. <laughs> And most things. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think the, the the quote about humility comes shortly after that one, that humility mm -hmm. is just realizing that you're not ever going to get there. And, and those two things, again, it was one of these moments of, okay, so I don't actually have to regret stuff if I, if I give myself a little freedom to be human and ordinary and yeah. not know any better because I just didn't know any better in that particular moment. And Absolutely. now I do. And so next time, that's not what I'm going to do. Yes. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. To, to give yourself the, I just don't know too many people who aren't doing the best that they can. It's like, it's, you know, maybe there's a few out there, but yeah, whoever's listening, you're give yourself the benefit. Of you're probably doing the best you can. And that comes with all sorts of trial and error. No need to regret, just keep going. Yeah, I remember hearing an interview with, I think it must have been the director, Jim Sheridan, when the movie In the Name of the Father came out. And it was another similar moment, actually, now that I'm thinking about it, when he said, you know, people, most people do not set out to do the wrong thing. Right. They set out to do what they believe is the right thing. And, and so, I mean, it certainly is true that plenty of people have done horrible things in the name of doing what they thought was the right thing. So that's is not me letting people off the hook, but it really gave me a different way to look at some of the things that I had experienced, some of the people that I had known and said, okay, but they were, they were doing what they genuinely believed, what the, what was the right thing, or they wouldn't have done that. Well, I mean, in the, in probably in the even greater tragedy is a person who, knows at some level they're doing the wrong thing and it's still the best that they can do right because yeah. now they're living the best that they can do is to live in the reality of doing something that they, they know is wrong so you can almost find a greater sort of empathy for that person they're they're living a little bit of a, a hell of their yeah that's in a sense but it's still the best they can do right Right. And that's so incredibly human too. I think we all have those moments where for one, it. you know, we lose it more than we wish we would, or, you know, we just can't bring ourselves for whatever reason to do the thing that we wish we could do. And see, last night, my 15 year old drove the car for the first time. <laughs> uh, actually, it was, it was the fourth time. And he thought he could pull into the garage and he did great pulling into the garage. And then when he got in there, he didn't accelerate. Oh! Yes, he did. And I was not at my best. <laughs> <laughs> except, except I think I actually was at my best. I think the way I handled it, good as I could do it. Right? And I hope that it was enough for him to, to not be hurt by. Um, but I did the best I could. But it, was, it didn't look great, I'll tell you that. <laughs> 
But that's also why the next morning exists, right? So you can go and say, hey, you know, I did the best I could last night, but I'm not going to lie. I was having a hard time and I wish I had done better. <laughs> I still haven't seen him, but I think my line, I think my line is going to be, okay, so just for now, I want to be clear. There are two petals and they do different things. <laughs> is that too, and then I'm going to say, is that too soon? And we'll see how he handles that. <laughs> Oh, I'm also imagining the, his own horror at, oh, oh dear exactly. God, what have I just done? You know, the entire world is going to collapse on my head yeah. and I can't believe what I just did. Yeah. 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 Thankfully, it was actually a relatively safe way to learn a particular lesson. So, yeah. <laughs> wow. We're doing the best we can. Well, I wanted to make sure that we have a couple of minutes to talk about sure. the spiritual side of creativity, since you are obviously a deeply spiritual guy. This is a, a more Christian oriented book, though. I think anyone could read it and, mm. you know, substitute in whatever their particular idea of the divine or God happens to be and mm. get just as much out of it. I I don't think the label is as important as the idea behind it myself, mm. but I I've been interested in how how spirituality and creativity intertwine because I think that they mm -hmm. they really overlap a lot and I'm wondering mm -hmm. what you may have noticed with this mm -hmm. book and with with the other ones or or just in general so gosh we should start another hour right now. I know that's part of why I asked you how much question. time you had <laughs> oh, yes because this is a conversation I could have all day um, and we, well, maybe and I, we'll have maybe, to do part two. <laughs> maybe we could. And well, and what would be fun about it is we'll both discover new things and mm -hmm. if you spend enough time on it, you know. Um, so I would say thank you for for sort of naming that. So I I, I was um, I was raised in Christian faith. Um, the, the the Christian faith that I practice now is almost the opposite of the one <laughs> that I was raised in. So it is not a monolithic thing. Um, and the way I say it these days is that uh, my Christian faith is more lens than agenda. Like it just, it, it helps me to see the world in a way that is most, uh, most loving, uh, for me. And, uh, but I don't have an agenda for anybody. That's why I think you say that about the book. Like my lens is there for sure. Um, and some of my language, but no one will feel any sort of pressure. Um, spirituality and creativity, I actually can't disentangle the two. I think creativity is one of the purest expressions of spirituality. Um, I believe, and we talked about this with Lovable, I believe that we come into the world, the true self, a soul, <clears throat> and that, that that soul is sort of the source of all of our creativity. But we that soul gets banged up, it gets hurt, it gets wounded. Um, <clears throat> the way I've been thinking of it is the soul is like the sponge, and it's supposed to soak up love. And then squeeze that love out in the form of love and creativity everywhere it goes. But a lot of times when we were young, sponge soaked up pain. And so when that happened, we started to create a protective layer around our sponge and false self or an ego. And that part of us can use the soul to create, but it's not, it's not creativity in its purest form. So as we spirituality is about reconnecting with what is most original, most true most innocent in us which is our soul and then allowing that thing to express itself through making something so i just i had this conversation i, I told a, a church going person of which i am um, less regularly than i thought was allowed when i was a kid but um i told them that i was writing something on a sunday morning and they're like why weren't you at church and i was like i was at church i was in front of the keyboard i'm never more connected with the divine than when i'm doing that like I'm taking orders, I feel like, at that point, and surrendered, um, and that is deeply spiritual. So anyways, that's a long-winding kind of introductory answer to your question about the two. That's what comes to yeah, mind. Yeah, yeah. I think that's so interesting. The idea of spirituality equals being in a particular building at a particular time doing a particular thing rather sure, than… Right. No, I am communing with whatever divine thing is is putting this idea in me and making me want yes. to get it out of myself yeah. is amazing. And also reminds me of the scene in the book where Father Lou comes and, and sees Elijah and says, shouldn't you be in church? And he's like, oh, wait, you are in church because he's yes. outside in this beautiful place. And yeah, I think I think there are so many ways to 
to see that intersection and to express that intersection mm-hmm. and that we we think a lot of the time of creativity as oh you're going to go write your little story you know i mean that's kind mm-hmm. of what I heard as a kid was not that condescending, but, but it kind of boiled down to that, right? Oh, she's downstairs writing yeah. a story, you know? Um, or, yeah, you have to go and play your guitar or whatever. And, and we mm-hmm. don't realize, you know, we, we've, we've left it on the margins mm-hmm. and we don't realize that it really is a central part of who we are as human beings. We're here to create, yes. right? You know, I mean, yeah, a beaver will build a dam, but beavers are pretty much stuck with the dams, right? Mm. They're not out mm. building houses. They're they're not right. playing songs. They're, you know, we're mm. the ones who have this wide range mm-hmm. and we decide that it's just a hobby or it's not important and it gets left at the bottom of the to-do list until it falls mm. off of the to-do list. And then we wonder why we're not happy one day. And yes. I think it's because we're not, interacting with that really divine creative part of ourselves that connects us with everything else absolutely well and again in my christian tradition there's that genesis story about creation um and that can get used in all sorts of ways but you know the the tradition that i'm a part of now um sees creation is unfinished that uh, that god created up to a point in that genesis story then created human beings and said Start naming, right? Start putting words to it. Start co start co-creating with me. Um, and so, like to me, that's that's the calling for each of us is to be to be creative in our own way and to recognize that we are all in one way or another creating in any given moment. We're creating a better space that we're in, <laughs> or we're creating a, uh, a more difficult space that we're in. Um, and so, just to be to be recognizing that we're sort of inherently creative beings, we're called to create, um, and that we are at our most joyful when we are creating intentionally with love, essentially. Um, and uh, yeah, to, for me, it's like, remember the lion, the witch in the wardrobe? Mm-hmm. I see C.S. Lewis, right? They, they open up the wardrobe and there's this whole world in there. To me, that's what it's like when, especially when I was writing fiction, was I would sit down with this little idea about the wardrobe and what I was going to be doing for that day. And I think, the writing session would just open up into this big world where things were happening that I didn't it's so weird it's in there somewhere like like but there's this space in there that is way bigger than I could possibly imagine and there's something magical and spiritual about about entering into that wardrobe and discovering the world in there so I just uh yeah I just can't I can't think of spirituality apart from that sort of creative experience yeah. And I don't know if, if you've had an experience like this when you're writing yet. I'm going to bet you probably have at least come close. But I, I, when I first started writing my own original fiction again, I had been doing some fan fiction stuff for a while. And I was like, I want to, mm-hmm. you know, do something of my own. I found a first line online and decided okay, that sounds interesting, and threw it into my word processor. And the next thing I know, I had like three paragraphs. And I sat there oh, looking yeah. at it going, I have no idea where that came from. And over the course of a weekend, it kept happening like that. I'd go back, I'd read what I had already written and three more paragraphs would pop up. And it kind of turned into this game, like, wow, what's going to happen next? I don't know. And I still don't feel like I wrote that story because the whole thing was literally, I have no idea where this is coming from. And so, yeah, it's like you're channeling something that came from somewhere else. It happened to me in the middle of writing my novel, you know, in a similar way where it just was like this river of words that flew out. And an hour later, I was like, I, okay. Yeah. <laughs> they are. And, okay. and well, and, and everywhere, I mean, in so many other places in life, if we like feeling passive in that sense, we feel terrible. And yet in the mm-hmm. creative space, feeling like a passive sort of recipient or conduit of the creative material feels, it's, it's amazing. I mean, it's like the epitome of joyful surrender. Right. And um, so to get to practice joyful surrender is a spiritual practice. Right. And here we are as a creative doing that, hopefully as many times as you can when you're sitting down to create. So, right. Um, yeah. I, I only have a couple minutes. And I, I have know. to ask a question. Okay. Na- Nancy. Yes, sir. If I was to pick up one piece of work of yours, where should I start? 
Wow. I, I know this I is mean, like being, of... this is like being a therapist and they ask you a question and you're not used <laughs> to answering the questions, right? It's, it's uh, I would love like... I'd love to start. It's sort of like asking, you know, which of your children is your favorite? Um, right, I know. But, well, so I have the one novel. Okay. If you want a novel, that's that's your thing. Okay. There are a bunch of um, articles on my website, and Got it. and so, oof. I don't know. I kind of want to say listen to the podcast because that's really what what there I've been you doing. Go. You know, for the last four that's years, you know, it's almost exactly four years since you and I had our first conversation when wow. I started the podcast, which is amazing. Yeah. But you know, there's there's so much in there, and I don't know if I could pick a particular episode because I love so many yes. of them. I, I love but, that answer, and let me just say, like, I can I can sense in our conversation just how present and the the energy and spirit you brought to this conversation like i can feel like that this is a creative thing for you well and, and i'll uh, tell you the truth beautiful. thank you that's something i learned from you the first time we talked oh no way <laughs> because i had a list of questions and we went through them in about 15 minutes okay and i sat here thinking oh what do i do now <laughs> Yeah. And I thought, well, you're going to have to pay attention and listen and keep the conversation going. And that's, that. that's what you're going to have to do. And the rest of that conversation was so much more interesting than just, I have these 10 questions to ask you yeah. that I have never done a conversation oh. any other way since then. And I, I laugh sometimes because people will say, you've researched your people so well. Like there are people I've talked to that I've really known nothing other than their name and mm. what they do. And it's just listening and asking questions yes. about what they say and paying attention. And I've yeah. learned how much we don't listen well. Yeah. One of the big things I learned that day with you, but it that changed, it changed the way I, I do these all the time. But to bring it full circle, Somewhere in the middle of our first conversation, you had to wander into the wild, and yep. it was more beautiful. Yes, there it was. Go. Yes, it was. Perfect. And I don't think I, I have ever you. admitted that out loud on this podcast, uh, but if ever there was going to be a moment, it's this one. So thank you for sharing that. Well, That's thank really you for going through questions that quickly. That day. <laughs> sure. <laughs> but, but, th and thank you for coming back because I mean, I loved our first conversation. I love this conversation. You're always welcome to come back anytime you want. So ping awesome. me. Let's... And we've got a book giveaway that I will tell people about in the, in the outro because I know you have to go. But anytime. Totally delightful. That is our show for this week. I am always so grateful to Kelly Flanagan for joining me and to you for listening. I promised details about the book giveaway at the end of the show, and here they are. Kelly's publisher has graciously offered a copy of the book to one lucky winner. If you are in the U.S., that will be a physical book, and if you're elsewhere in the world, it'll be an ebook. To enter, share my Twitter or Instagram post about this episode between now and midnight on November 16th, Eastern Standard Time. That's New York time. I'll do my best to get these links into your podcast app ASAP to make it super easy for you. But if you don't see them yet, come back and check later or go take a look at my accounts. Now, this is important. You must tag me to enter because otherwise I won't have any way of knowing that you shared the post and won't be able to add you to the drawing. So make sure you tag me. Multiple shares will not result in multiple entries only because, alas, there is only one of me. I will collect the entries in a spreadsheet and use a random number generator to select a winner and will notify the winner via the account they used to enter. If I can't make contact with the winner after three days, I'll choose another winner. I'll do my best to take care of all of this and notify the winner by December 1st. Maybe sooner if we get lucky. I hope you'll enter to win a copy of the book. If the winner okays it, I will share their name in a later episode. Thanks for participating and good luck. If this episode resonated with you, don't forget to get in touch on any of my social platforms or even via email at nancy at fycuriosity.com and tell me what you loved. And if you're feeling a little bit less than confident in your creative process right now, and you haven't yet signed up for my free email series on six of the most common creative beliefs that are messing you up, please check it out. 
It'll untangle those myths and help you get rolling again. You can find it at fycuriosity.com, and there's also a link right in your podcast app. See you there, and see you next week. Follow Your Curiosity is produced by me, Nancy Norbeck, with music by Joseph McDade. If you like Follow Your Curiosity, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to tell your friends. It really helps me reach new listeners. Thanks. Thank you.